students. And I once met a girl who had gone to a boarding school in Austria, I think it was. And this school was run by an order of nuns. And so I always mind a bit like the sound of music um, about Julie Andrews. Um, and early in the morning, she would often talk about the routine in this school. And that she shared a dormitory with lots of other um, girls of her age. And every morning, very early in the morning, one of the nuns would walk into the room and with gusto pull back the curtains and shout, Rise and shine, give the glory to God. And the girls hated her for that. Anyone who has experienced with teenagers, who maybe is a teenager or remembers what it's like to be a teenager, knows that early mornings and teenagers do not mix very well. And a cheerful nun walking into your bedroom early in the morning, telling you to rise and shine, give the glory to God, is the last thing a teenager wants to hear. They certainly didn't give glory to God, I'm told. And this morning, as we prepare to look at Psalm 103, it's one of the great psalms of praise in the Bible, I want to suggest that maybe we can all be a bit like that dormitory of teenagers in Austria. Praising God, whether early in the morning or not, just does not come naturally to us. If we're Christians, we know that we should praise God, but it isn't always very easy. If we're not Christians, it seems like one of the odd things Christians are told to do. Why is there such an emphasis in the Bible on thanking God? Why does God seem so concerned that his people praise him? See, in prayer, many of us find praising God difficult, while asking God for help is a very natural thing. It's instinctive to us to ask God for help. It's not instinctive to thank God for when he does help us. And when others call on us to praise God, perhaps like this psalm this morning, our reaction can often be like one of grumbling teenagers. I just don't feel like praising God today. And there are a number of reasons for that. Perhaps life is difficult at the moment. You just feel very far away from God at a particular moment in time. Perhaps it's hard to trust that God really is good and praiseworthy at particular moments in our lives. Whatever the reason, a Psalm like 103 can at first glance seem to be a bit cold sometimes if we're not in the mood to praise God. So why is praising God so difficult? Because the thing is, we praise other people and other things very naturally in our lives. Actually, praise is a very natural human instinct for all of us, really. When children please their parents, whether it's by eating their greens or by doing well on an exam, their parents praise them. It's, it's instinctive. When Italy won the World Cup, the Italian fans praised Italy. When I see a film I really enjoy, I want to praise it to other people. I, I go, yeah, it's a really good film because of this reason and this reason. It's instinctive to praise it. Boyfriends praise their girlfriends sometimes. Some people praise their new cars. Food lovers praise a good restaurant. Praise itself is very natural. So why is praising God so difficult for us? I think there are at least two reasons. And there are reasons that Psalm 103 recognises and then shows us how to overcome. The first reason is a very simple one, that we're all sinners. The Bible tells us that. And it seems very obvious to say that, but we always forget that fact to our peril. Every single one of us has a sinful heart that is naturally opposed to God and which doesn't want to praise God. 
The Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans says that one of the outworkings of sin in our lives is that we, we praise created things rather than the Creator. So it's very natural to praise other things, but God is something different. So on one level, we shouldn't be surprised if we find it difficult sometimes to praise God. The second reason why we often find it difficult to praise God is that we think that our praise of God is first and foremost dependent on how we are feeling at any given time. So we think that praising God is about the way we feel about him at a particular moment. So there'll be times when we feel like praising God and times when we just don't. And again, I want to say there is a lot of truth in that view. There clearly are times in our lives when it will be more natural to praise God than at other times. But I think Psalm 103 has important things to teach us if we think that praising God is primarily about how we feel about him. See, according to this psalm, praising God is not dependent on how we are feeling. Instead, praising God is about recognising who God is and what God has done in history and in our lives. And the thing is, whatever we are feeling does not change the facts of who our God is and what he has done. See, the challenge that Psalm 103 leaves with us is we will only praise the Lord if we urge ourselves to look at him and if we meditate on who he is as the psalmist does here. See, Psalm 103 is an amazing description of praise, but you don't have to be a cheerful Austrian nun to echo its words. We can all sing these words together. So first of all, then, let's learn how we can praise God according to this psalm. Look at verses 1 to 2 here that Marisa read out for us as we were praying earlier. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You see how the psalmist begins here? He begins by urging himself to praise God. He is calling on his soul, his inmost being, to praise God's holy name. See, what we see the psalmist doing at the beginning of this psalm is a key to praising God. What the psalmist is doing here is he's talking to himself. Now, talking to yourself is generally taken as a sign of madness. So we don't, we're not really attracted to the idea. But according to the psalmist here, it's a sign of spiritual health. See, the psalmist has to urge his soul to praise the Lord, because by doing that, he will remind himself just how glorious and good the Lord is when he's forgotten. Verse 2 says, it is very easy to forget the Lord's benefits. The psalmist has to remind himself of who God is because his sinful heart is naturally opposed to praising God. See, we need to learn from the psalmist here. Sometimes we think, I would praise God if events in my life were different. I would praise God if my life was as easy as that person over there. I would praise God if my childhood had been a better one. But the psalmist, if it's David here, he had a pretty rough childhood. He was neglected by his father by all accounts, sent out into the fields to look after the sheep. It wasn't easy for him growing up. 
And his life was far from easy. Just look at the Old Testament passages about David's life. His life was not an easy one. And yet here, he feels he can urge himself and should urge himself to praise the good and glorious God in whom he trusts. See, we need to learn from this and to take action ourselves. To lift our eyes to the Lord and look at him, which is what this psalm helps us to do. But having said that, we need to be clear what the psalmist is saying and what he isn't saying. This psalm, when you look at it, is not just an example of the power of positive thinking, which you might think it is. Hope we can see the psalm doesn't just describe praise as an act of the will, as something we we kind of make up in ourselves. See, look at verse 1 again. The psalmist wants his soul to praise God, his inmost being to praise God. He isn't interested in just an outward form of praise just in convincing himself that praising God is somehow the right thing to do. No, he wants praise to flow out from his inmost being, from his soul. He wants the deepest, most personal parts of himself to know God and to praise him. So again, praise of the living God, it can't just be generated by ourselves, because then it would just be an outward show. But again, that is where a psalm like this plays such an important part in our lives. See, this psalm, like the rest of Scripture, is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words. And that same Holy Spirit helps us to understand these words as we read them, as we look at them and meditate on them. See, what this psalm does, it doesn't just remind us of facts. It actually helps to transform us if we ask God to use it in that way. The Holy Spirit uses Psalms like 103 to transform our hearts and to make our inmost beings overflow with thankfulness to God. You see, true praise of the true God has to come from our inmost being. And the only way we will praise God in that way is if God first transforms us And he does that by lifting our eyes to him. See, Psalm 103 is an amazing series of portraits of just who God is. And they're portraits that change us if we let them. That change us if we ask God to use them in that way. So let's look at some of those portraits in this psalm now. That's briefly the high of praise in this psalm. This is now the why why we praise the God of Psalm 103. See again, David paints a picture of a God who is, when we look at it, truly awe-inspiring in his goodness towards his people. See, first of all, in verses 2 to 5, we get a picture of God's extravagant kindness. I'll just read verses 2 to 5 again. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. See, the focus here is on what the Lord has done in the life of every believer. And verse 2 again admits these are blessings we're prone to forget. So verses 3 to 5 If you look at them, they're actually phrased in such a way as to be memorable 
before us, to be verses that we can actually remember and meditate on about God's great kindness to us. A few years ago, before I came to Oxford, um, I used to have to teach poetry um, to university students and to teenagers. And basically every class I ever taught would always bring with them the assumption that poetry um, was basically a waste of time. Um, maybe you feel the same about that this morning. But um, they would just say, well, why couldn't the poet just tell us what he means in plain English? See, why doesn't he just write a bit of prose and say, here's what I mean? But you see, the thing is, where poetry is at its best is in describing things in carefully chosen and memorable words and phrases. And there are things that would take pages and pages of prose to describe. See, look again at verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 103. They're so brief, and yet there is so much in them. To describe them in other ways would take pages and pages of writing. And in English poetry, the classic way of helping us remember poetry is to use rhyme. But in Hebrew poetry, like Psalm 103, the method they used was called parallelism. Um, don't worry, I won't test you on that later. Um, but what that is, is that you write one line, and then you write another line that reinforces what the first line said, and usually adds something new to the idea. And so that's what the phrases in verses 3 to 5 are doing here. So verse 3, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. See, both these lines stress the complete nature of God's kindness to his people. When God works in someone's life, he deals with all their sins and all their diseases. See, verse 3 recognises that when God forgives someone of their sins, he has begun a process that will end with that person being free from all disease and all sickness. The Bible is clear that disease and sickness are caused by sin in the world. So the psalmist is looking ahead to the end of sin in his life, which will also be the end of disease. Now we need to be clear here that these two things, forgiveness and healing of diseases, do not always come together at the same time and aren't guaranteed to us before the new creation. It's so important for us to get that right, to get the order of things right. See, forgiveness does not always bring with it immediate physical healing in our lives. And forgiveness did not always bring with it immediate physical healing in David's life either, the writer of this psalm. And in 2 Samuel 12, for instance, and after David's affair with Bathsheba has been exposed, David is forgiven by God. But the son he's had with Bathsheba remains ill and eventually dies. See, God forgives David's sin there, but he doesn't heal the disease that was caused by David's sin. And it's the same with us today. See, a Christian is assured of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But we are not promised immediate physical healing from any sickness. See, any healing we do experience now does come from God and we should praise him for that, whether it's miraculous healing or whether it's through the, the work of a doctor. But any such healing will always be temporary, this side of God's new creation. Once we're healed, we will get sick again. We will grow old because this world that we live in is tainted with sin. But you see, what verse 3 of this psalm looks forward to, poetically and prophetically, 
is God's new creation, when not only will our sins have been forgiven, but our bodies will reflect that fact. See, God will heal all our diseases. Diseases, sickness and death will be no more. And we will praise God with resurrection bodies like that of Jesus's. And see, this psalm is looking ahead to that day. It rejoices in God's forgiveness. It rejoices in temporary healing that God may grant to us here and now. And it rejoices that God's extravagant kindness will one day transform us, body and all, in the new creation. And there will be no more disease and no more sickness. See, verse 4 continues in that. Verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Now the first phrase emphasises just how much God has rescued us from if we believe in him. God has rescued us, the psalmist says, from the pit. Which again is a poetic image of, of death, of darkness, of despair without God. See the psalmist is under no illusions. All the benefits he's listing about God here are not just optional extras that are just nice to have if you can get them. Without God, the psalmist knows he is lost. He is dead. He is cut off from life and cut off from the giver of life. So if you're a Christian here this morning, verse 4 reminds you of what you've been rescued from. From the pit. From death without God. And the second phrase in verse 4 reinforces that. Not only has God rescued believers from the pit, he has crowned you with love and compassion. And that is an amazing image. It really does add to that rescue thing. The picture is almost of God not being satisfied with just rescuing us and redeeming our lives. It's almost as if you're outside of the pit. You've been rescued from that. You're standing on the edge of this pit. You've been rescued by God and God looks at you and he says, that's not enough. My purpose for that person doesn't end with rescue. It ends with them being crowned as my child. It ends with them enjoying all the benefits that Jesus' death has brought to them. You see, God's kindness to believers is extravagant And so often, we miss that. See, sometimes evangelical Christians particularly can get so concerned with the beginnings of our Christian lives, when and how we first trust in Jesus, when and how we first become a Christian, that we almost think the process ends there. We almost think that God is somehow finished with us once we've been converted. But this psalm is clear. God is not finished with us yet. He has amazing purposes for us in the new creation. A crime that we don't deserve, but that Jesus has bought for us through his death. And love and compassion we will only experience fully when we see God face to face. See, if you're a Christian here, you haven't just been rescued. You've been given a crime. You've been crowned with love and compassion. And the privileges there are yours to enjoy today, but also more fully in the future. 
in that future that God has prepared for all his people. And then verse 5 finishes up this section of couplets on God's extravagant kindness. God satisfies your desires with good things. Again, we just always need to remind ourselves of this. God's purposes for you, if you're one of his children, are good. So often we doubt that. We presume that somehow God, we're missing out on things by trusting in God. We're missing out on happiness we could have otherwise. But nothing could be further from the truth. God delights in satisfying our desires, not with things that hurt us, not with things that prove barren and hollow and ash in our mouths, but with good things, with things that benefit us and show us just how much he treasures us and loves us. One Christian, Augustine, once put it in an address to God. He said to God, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. God has made us to know him. His purposes for us are good. And then the final part of verse 5 adds to that. It is partly fulfilled today, but it also again, like so many other images, looks ahead. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's been one of the greatest privileges of my life um, to meet and learn from Christians who were still living passionately for Christ in their old age. And this week, one man I got to know well when I was living up in Durham um, passed away on Wednesday. He was in his 80s. And the last few years of his life had been very difficult for him with a series of strokes. But when I knew him and talked to him about Jesus, his eyes would light up as he would tell me stories of just all that Jesus had done for him. He would tell me about Jesus rescuing him from a life of alcoholism and transforming him. He would tell me about the things he'd done for Jesus in the Lake District when he'd lived there and he'd been part of a mission and working with, with, with Dinanites. He just would come alive talking about all that Jesus had done in his life. When I spoke to him about those things, Bill's youth was renewed like the eagles because he knew that God had worked in his life and God had done great things in his life. Again, we can see that sometimes when we talk to older fathers and mothers in the faith. People who maybe are frail outwardly. But when you talk to them about Christ, their youth is renewed like the eagles. And again, that will be fulfilled completely in the future. And I look forward to seeing my friend Bill again with a resurrection body in the prime of his life and talking with him and praising God again with him. See, his amazing pictures of extravagant kindness of God like this that have to move us to praise him, that move us to thank him for what he's done. And then the next section of the psalm, more briefly, really emphasises God's grace. If we haven't already got that message, the psalmist really wants us to get it now. All the pictures of God in these verses are characterised by grace. So verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. See, just as he saved the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, so the Lord is committed to helping the oppressed wherever they are. That is part of his eternal 
character. God wants to bring justice to those who are oppressed. And verse 8 describes how God revealed his character to Moses on Mount Sinai. Just read verse 8 for you. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And God revealed that bit of his character to Moses straight after the children of Israel had sinned horrifically against God. God had rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, and they were grumbling against him and eventually they made a golden calf to worship instead of God. See, God would have been perfectly just in just abandoning his people at that point and wiping them out because of their sin. But God was telling Moses, in the words of verse 8, that that is not his character. He does not treat his people in accordance with justice, but in accordance with grace. Just read verse 10 for you. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. You see, God's grace was the people of Israel's only hope in the wilderness. And God's grace is the only hope for every Christian sitting here this morning. We've already thought this morning how cold we can be towards God, how often we don't want to praise him, and how often that is a sign of our sinful hearts. That we are all sinners, even if we're Christians. And we need always to accept that. But the thing that God stresses about his character in these verses is that God knows that we are sinners. Even when we succeed in fooling ourselves or fooling other people, that basically we're good people, we're upright people, we would never let God down. God knows the truth. And God sees our sin. And the incredible news of the gospel is that we don't need to hide our sin from God. Instead, we can ask him to forgive us and he will take that sin as far away from us as it can go. That's verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. See, we've all done things that we are ashamed of. Sometimes things we are deeply ashamed of. They range from how we have treated other people to how we have, we have spoken to other people, how we have been cruel towards them, how we've treated ourselves at times, and ultimately how we have treated the God who made us. And again, even if we're Christians, those memories can come back to haunt us and to taunt us and to rob us of any peace. See, how could God ever love someone like you? How could God ever love someone who did that? Who said that? Who thinks that about that person? Other people might not know the truth, but, but God does. How could he love you? Do you see why we need verses 11 and 12 here? Why we need always to come back to them? when those memories come back to haunt us. How high are the heavens above the earth? The psalmist's answer, they're too high for the psalmist to measure. And that is how much God loves those who fear him. How far is the east from the west? Well, you'll go round in circles forever trying to find that out. 
And God has taken our sin and thrown it an infinite distance away from us. See, God knows you're a sinner. God sees your heart, even if you can hide it from everyone else. And yet, God chooses to forgive you if you ask him to and to remove your sin forever. And then there are two more pictures of God's grace in these verses. Verse 13 portrays God as a compassionate father with his children. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And again, this image of a compassionate parent is something that we can all relate to. None of our parents were perfect. I think we all will accept that. Some of them may have treated us terribly. But the image of a compassionate father is something that does ring true in all of us. It's something we long for, even if we didn't have it ourselves. And compassion, when you think about it, is what good parents really need. Again, I'm not a parent, but I look around and I see the way children can have a a way of really embarrassing their parents. Some young children are always getting into trouble. They're just saying the wrong thing. They keep getting injured, breaking legs, breaking arms. They embarrass themselves. They embarrass their parents. And stop showing off is the worst phrase you can ever hear when you're a child. I got that a few times myself. But the thing is, my embarrassing behavior didn't stop my parents loving me. They understood that I was young and they were compassionate towards me, even though I kept messing up. And some of us may fall into that category today. Perhaps your personality is a a headstrong one, an impulsive one, prone to making big mistakes through the things you say or do. Well, remember that God is a compassionate Father and he's able to forgive us even when we make huge mistakes sometimes. And in other children, their problem, if you like, is the opposite one. They're maybe painfully shy. They never want to leave their parents' side. They get scared very easily and often struggle to make friends. And again, that was, I can relate to that myself from my childhood. At children's camps, I was often a little boy crying on the first night, wanting to go home and wanting, wanting the leaders to, to phone my parents. I was very timid away from the security of my family. And perhaps that's more like you today. You feel unsure of yourself. As if God could never use someone like you, a quiet person perhaps, like you. But again, these verses remind us God is a compassionate Father. He knows how we're formed. He knows about our personalities. And he chooses to set his love on us and to use us for his purposes. So whether we're impulsive or headstrong, whether we're quiet and unsure of ourselves, this picture of God as a compassionate Father has great comfort for us an encouragement for us to praise him and to thank him for that. And then verse 14, the last one in this section, is a little out of place at first when you look at it. It looks a little bit grim, this verse, a bit morbid even, after the wonderful descriptions of compassion in the earlier verses. Verse 14, For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. You see, that too is a reminder of God's grace to us. God isn't just our Father. He knows how we're made and he knows that we're dust. We won't live forever, 
no matter how much exercise we take, no matter how much good food we eat, no matter how much moisturiser we use, we are dust. And one day, we will die. We're frail and we're weak. And God knows that. And that is good news because it means he doesn't expect the impossible from us. So you might fool ourselves that we can do anything. We might have impossibly high standards for ourselves so that we are always living with a sense of disappointment. We never quite achieve what we want to. Our family life isn't as strong as we thought it would be. Our job doesn't get done to the fullness that we would love it to get done. We don't help our friends and neighbours as much as we dearly love to. But God knows that you are dust and God knows that you have limits. That you're actually frail and that you can't do everything. See, God knows that. And again, he still chooses to work through you. And the fact that God knows that we're dust means that again, we can be honest with him. It means we can rest without feeling guilty about resting. It means that God is never surprised by our weaknesses, even when they shock us. And that he's still committed to being gracious to his people. So again, amazing portraits of God's character here. And as the psalm draws to an end, the psalmist dwells on the commitment God demonstrates towards his children that goes on for eternity. And that's verses 15 to 18. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So as I've already mentioned, a good friend of mine died this week. An old man who'd shown me a lot of love and care when I was a student. When I was looking at these verses this week, verse 17 stood out for me. Because what verse 17 tells me is that everything we have been looking at this morning about God's grace and compassion to his children is just as true for my friend Bill today as it is for all of us here. See, my friend may have died, but the Lord's love is still with him. See, Bill has gone to be with his Lord and the Lord's love is caring for him right now. See, God is not just committed to you today. If you put your trust in him, he is committed to caring for you for all eternity. If we pass away before Jesus comes back, we will go to be with God in heaven and we will be cared for there. And then when Jesus comes back, we will receive new bodies and a new creation and we will rejoice in God's care for us. See, God will care for us forever. And that is a promise. And verse 19 shows why we can trust that promise. Because the Lord is king. He's established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This psalm is full of promises and if God couldn't fulfill them, 
they would just be bitter and empty to us. They would raise our hopes and then dash them. But verse 19 reminds us, God is able to fulfill each one of these promises because he is the king and he is in charge. He has the power to care for us in the way that he describes here. So as we finish this psalm, we began thinking about why it is difficult to praise the Lord. We thought that we don't praise God because we're sinners. And we don't praise God often because we don't feel like it. And we think that means we can't praise God. But I hope you can see that Psalm 103 is written in such a memorable way that we are meant to be able to memorize it. We're meant to be able to think, this is the God whom I serve. Even when I've woken up and I have no desire to praise him, I can look at this psalm and praise will come. See, it reminds us of God's kindness, his grace, his care for his children. And none of those things ever change, no matter how we may be feeling at any given moment. See, the key to praising God is to look at God. Not to wait till we feel like looking at him, but to urge ourselves to look again and to see who he is. And the closing verses of the psalm remind us that when we praise God, when we take that time to urge ourselves to thank him, then we're not alone. We're not alone praising him. We are actually joining in with the praise of heaven and of all creation to the God who has made everything and who is compassionate and gracious. And we need to allow that God to captivate our hearts as he does his angels. Verse 20. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul.